last week, we began what I feel is an important conversation for us as God's people about fear and courage in the Bible. Uh, it occurred to me, uh, the, kind of the big takeaway from last week's lesson, if you weren't with us, is just the idea that you experience fear in your life precisely because you're not God-like. If you were like God, equal to Him in divine essence and power, you would never feel fear. Never once. There would never be anything unknown. There would never be anything outside of your control. There would never be anything that you didn't have in your person, the power to change. God never has occasion to fear precisely because He's God. And you're full of fears because you're not. And God's command to us to fear not, the, the thing we took up last week is how can God can command non-gods to feel emotionally like we were gods? <laughs> how can He do that? And the reason is because, brothers and sisters, you do lack godlike powers, but you do not lack God. The very reason why you were created needy was so that God could be shown, could be glorified to be the excellent need-meeting God that He is. And you glorify Him when in your fear you turn to Him and say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will, not, I will fear no evil because Although I lack God-like powers, I don't lack God. You're with me. This is one of the great and awesome ways that you have as a Christian to say to God, I believe you. When in our fears, we turn to Him, because all of us in our fears are like sheep who wish we were shepherd-like. <laughs> and when we try to behave like our own shepherd, we betray a horrifying distrust of the shepherd we have. And it is pure worship, and it is honoring to God, it is glorifying to Him when in our fears we trust Him to be the shepherd on watch. Easier said than done, is it not? <laughs> I had occasion to fear this week, and the words from my last sermon floated through my mind, taunting me. Josh, do you really believe what you're pitching to others? Can you really, in a helpful way, apply what you said last Sunday to your own circumstances? I won't get into my circumstances, but I was afraid. <laughs> and uh, guys, I reworded Isaiah 41 that we talked about last week as a prayer. I spoke back to God the mighty things He's done on behalf of His people. I told Him, you are my shepherd, I shall not want. And by the end of the day, believe it or not, I had a light heart about what had caused me such terrible, horrible fear in the morning. God wants to transform our inner world into a place where He is shown to be as excellent as He is. And this morning, I want to continue our conversation about fear and courage by taking up a specific species of fear, which is especially prevalent. Uh, we're very social creatures human beings. We live in community. And this morning I want to talk about the fear of man. Do you guys remember on that first Easter morning, Jesus has been resurrected from the grave, and the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples. Do you remember where they were? We're told in John, at the end of the Gospel of John, that they were locked away behind locked doors because they were afraid of the people. They were afraid and Jesus appears to them in the midst of their fears and tells them, don't be afraid. And what's amazing is you have this gathering of people, scared, paralyzed with the fear of man, who a relatively short time later, we find them openly preaching the gospel before crowds of thousands and in the synagogues and even in the temple. What happened to their fears? I'd submit to you, I don't think they went away. It's just they had found something else to govern them. I think this is going to be critically important this morning as we take up this idea of the fear of man. First, let me define it. 
When I say the fear of man, I'm talking about, this is a description of the heart of someone who either does or doesn't do certain things out of fear of what others might think. When I talk about the fear of man, what I'm describing is somebody whose heart is in the grip of other people's opinions to the point where they, where they say things or don't say things or do things or don't do things because of fear of what others may think. Sometimes the fear of man bullies people into silence and inaction. And at other times it bullies people into doing and saying things against their own consciences. We saw an example of this back when we studied John chapter 12 last year. In John 12, verses 42 through 43, it says, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, that being Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So they believed, but they didn't say anything because they were afraid of what other people would think. This is a clear example of the fear of man. Interestingly, these two verses from John chapter 12 mention the fear of man and a love for the glory that comes from man. People who fear what others will think of them are also very likely addicted to the good opinion of others. Fearing man comes from loving the glory that comes from man. And one of the many temptations that a people pleaser will face is an excessive concern for the good opinion of others. Uh, and, and we see this in a million different ways as Christians, don't we? Uh, just the other day, I came out of my house and a, uh, a campaign yard poster had blown into my yard. And the first thing I thought was, i got to get that thing out of here before somebody drives by and thinks I'm endorsing that person. Good or bad, I don't want anybody to get me mixed up with some political agenda or something like that. Now, I scurried out there like there was a million-dollar bill in the yard to get rid of that poster. Why? I was afraid of what people might think. <laughs> Somebody might drive by and say, oh, I didn't know Josh supported that person or whatever. Got to get rid of it. Uh, as a pastor, uh, I have had the unique and very interesting experience of speaking at a few baccalaureate services in school gymnasiums. Something feels very strange about teaching God's Word in front of a secular audience. And when I do that, I think, maybe I'm exaggerating or maybe I'm, a, I'm making things up, but I think I can feel an almost palpable discomfort from the audience. Like, oh, what is this pastor going to say <laughs> in the school gymnasium in front of a crowd of people that are really here for tradition's sake, not for Jesus' sake? And in those moments, do I pull a punch? Do I live in the minds of those people? Do I... What, what, what do you do? A thousand times on social media, Facebook, around the Thanksgiving table, in your workplace, things come up. You let it go. You don't say anything. You say it, and then you regret it for days. <laughs> All of this, guys, is evidence of the fact that the fear of man is always creeping around the edges of our hearts. When we read the gospel accounts, we see that the powerful religious leaders of that day were not only in the grip of this fear of man themselves, but they also wielded it like a weapon. Matthew twenty-two fifteen through 21, we read this, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. One of the things to know here in this passage is who they sent. The Pharisees sent their followers and also the Herodians. 
This is like saying, here's what we'll do. We'll send liberal progressive Democrats and conservative Republicans to ask the same question of you at the same time. And you can't possibly answer without offending one of these two political camps. It's impossible. Tell us then what you think. Because Herodians and Pharisees were diametrically opposed. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, Jesus very skillfully sidesteps this whole thing. But what is the weapon they're wielding in the middle of this conversation? Whatever you say, Jesus, it's going to royally tick some people off. You're going to be thinking about what people are going to think if you say the wrong thing. Numerous times in the gospel accounts, the scribes and Pharisees wanted to stone Jesus or arrest him, or sometimes it says they wanted to lay hands on him. But we are told they did not because why? They feared the crowd. They said, man, if we do this right now in front of everybody, they're going to really hate us. <laughs> in fact, their instructions to Judas was that he would arrange for them to arrest Jesus sometime when he was all alone and not amongst a crowd. These guys fear man, and they want you to as well. Jesus once turned their questions back onto them and used their vainglorious love or fear of the crowds against them. Jesus in Matthew 21, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves. I can just see him in a huddle, like whispering. I wish I could see it. They said to one another, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, get this, we're afraid of the crowd. For they all hold that John was a prophet. These guys, their mental calculations are... We need to say something that will not make the crowds think less of us. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Much like the culture that Jesus lived in during the days of his earthly ministry, we are living in the midst of a generation that is both in the grip of the fear of man and that also wields it like a weapon in the public space. What question, what question could the culture put to you in front of your coworkers or classmates or neighbors that would fill you with fear at the thought of answering it in an unfiltered, plain way? What question could they put to me on WAGM that would create in me a crisis of conscience? And the reason why someone might fear stating publicly their Bible-shaped convictions is because just like the culture of first century Judea, the God of this current generation is a God of wrath and there is no grace. Even if something is dug up from years before, it can be held against you. Now, here, I think, there is a promising thing for the church. The church exists as a people within a people. We're a culture that is shaped not by wrath, but by grace. We are a people who gather together and freely confess that we're not good that we have sordid pasts, that we have a present that isn't exactly what we'd like it to be either. But we're all striving towards the same future, which is to become more and more like the God who saved us. 
And in the midst of all of our wild imperfections, our failures, our falling down, getting up, dusting ourselves off, in the midst of all of that, we show one another grace because we worship a God who extended us grace. God does not love us as Christians because of our goodness or our merit. He loves us because he's good, not because we are. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, says Romans 5.8. And whereas the culture says, we will use fear to bring you into line. We will use fear to make you silent about what you love. God says to us, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Our God, who has every right (laughs) to mete out punishment on us, has taken that off the table. He has said, all of the wrath that we earned and deserved as sinners fell on Jesus on the cross. And now by putting our trust in Jesus alone for salvation, all that has been removed. If I go out and commit a sin today, I am still saved. God still loves me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, says Romans 8.1. God doesn't lie. He means it. But he's given me the Holy Spirit within me that has given me new affections, new desires, a newfound hatred for the sin in my life. And now I'm free to follow God because I love him and I genuinely want to be with him. Our God says fear has to do with punishment and perfect love drives out fear. Our culture says Get in line. (laughs) And this is exactly what was going on in Jesus' day as well. I think that arguably the most well-known example of someone who struggled habitually with the fear of man in the Bible is the Apostle Peter. Peter is, perhaps like all of us, a, just a really complicated figure of a man. A lot has been said about Peter. People tend to like him because he wear wears his emotions on his sleeves. Uh, he's been characterized as impetuous, as just somebody who's kind of up and down and all around, maybe a little bit manic at times. He kind of gets out over his skis and says things before his mind catches up. And so we all tend to, we all know a Peter. And unlike in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we have these really fully formed biographies of people. Like you actually know a lot about the personal lives of people like David or Isaac or Abraham about their inner world of emotions, their past experiences, how they were shaped as human beings. In the New Testament, though, we just kind of have these names. Like, what do you know, really, about Thomas? You know he exists. (laughs) You know he's one of the disciples. You know some of the things he did. But we don't really have these fully formed biographies. Peter is one of those guys, though, in the New Testament, where although we may not have as much information about him as, like, David, the Bible actually interacts with Peter the man a lot. We get a a more fully formed picture of Peter. And so I think we all sort of have this emotional response to Peter that maybe we don't to some of the other names that we encounter in the New Testament. So Peter's kind of an interesting guy that way. But he's very complicated. He's really, maybe another word might be inconsistent. Sometimes Peter, you can't help but be impressed at how bold and fearless the man is. I mean, he is just saying stuff in front of crowds when other people are not talking up. Uh, Jesus will put a question out there, and Peter's the only one in the group who's got the guts to say something, to answer. And then other times, this same man, who's an absolute lion of a human being, is bullied by a servant girl. He's strange. Get this. Of course, the most famous example, Mark 14... This is after Jesus was arrested, but before he's crucified. Peter follows Jesus. Again, pretty brave, honestly. 
The other disciples have scattered. Peter follows Jesus. He, what's going on? He can't stay away. So he kind of bravely hangs around the scene. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man, that guy's one of them. I know it. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders, there's a crowd gathering now, lots of people. And they again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The fear of man. However, I think that the passage that gives us the most insight into Peter's struggle with the fear of man is found in Galatians 2, 11 through 16. This is our text for this morning. Everybody's like, oh no, we've already spent like 10 minutes. He's only getting to the text for this morning. I could feel it coming off of you in waves. Uh, Galatians 2, 11 through 16, it says this, But when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, when he came to Antioch, this is Paul writing, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. First of all, this uh, if, if you are... Um, kind of new to Christianity, or you're here just kind of exploring it a little bit, uh, the, the meat of the conflict between Paul and Peter is, um, is really interesting as far as the, the history of the church goes. Christianity emerged out of the milieu of Judaism. And uh, Judaism, of course, has had all different kinds of practices. You could, there are foods you couldn't eat. You had to be circumcised. All these things were viewed in their mind as essential to being in God's favor. And so when Christianity came along out of that place and, and a new era of redemptive history began, um, Paul ha- is really pushing back very strong against the idea that man must be saved through works. And there's a group of um, people in Jerusalem who are making the statement, the argument, that yes, Jesus is necessary for your salvation, but you've got to do your part too. Jesus is dying on the cross, is, is important, that's essential to your salvation, but it's also important that you be circumcised if you're a Gentile convert, that you... Uh, maintain the dietary laws that you, all these different things. And so Paul, really his whole letter to the Galatians is pushing back against this idea in the strongest worded way possible. Uh, When you read Galatians, you see Paul at his most fiery. He says things that surprise you, almost like, can he really say that in the Bible? (laughs) And I could give you chapter and verse for that if you want to look it up some other time. But here, he's really laying into Peter over Peter over some things Peter does. I want to explore this conflict a little bit more, just so we understand it. 
Earlier in Galatians, we're told that there were certain people in Jerusalem who professed to be Jewish Christian believers who tried to compel a man named Titus. Titus was a Gentile Christian convert, and they said, well, you can't be saved, you can't really be a Christian until you've been circumcised. And the Apostle Paul refused to submit to this pressure. The reason given in verse 5 of Galatians 1 for his refusal is this, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So this is not, in Paul's mind, some side debate. This is utterly, critically important. If Paul had yielded to the demand for Titus to go through that uh, procedure under those circumstances, he would have gutted the gospel of all of its saving power. Salvation would have become about us doing rather than what Christ did. And the rest that we have found in Christ would have been traded for the heavy burden of legalism. The good news would have become just the same old news, and we would all still be under the wrath of God for our sin. So let's be very clear about what the Bible exposes in this little dust-up between Paul and Peter. Paul describes what Peter is doing as hypocrisy, not disagreement. Peter and Paul don't disagree about how a person is saved. Peter does not break off fellowship with the Gentiles of Galatia because of his principles. He breaks with his principles because he fears this group of men who have come from Jerusalem and what they will think of him if he is doing these things that they view as out of bounds. Peter is bullied into denying the Galatian Christians. So his failure here is not an incorrect understanding of the gospel, but rather a cowardly unwillingness to stand and sacrifice for it. There's real heat surrounding this issue at that time. Uh, to us, it might just seem kind of academic, maybe even strange. This is a relic from a bygone culture and expectations that we feel are strange and odd. But in the midst of this, there is the same sort of pressures that you feel over any hot-button issue. There's a complicated, complicated web of relationships. There are ideas that are at stake here. There are different opinions, and those opinions are inflamed. People are fired up over this stuff. And these guys show up from Jerusalem, and Peter instantly starts to do the mental calculations that we all do when something is happening around us that we need to decide whether to swerve into it or just get away. <laughs> Peter doesn't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. Most people, I think, struggle with habitual sin. And here we see Peter behaving in that same way we saw him behaving in the courtyard once Jesus was arrested. He is gripped with the same spirit in this moment as he was back then when he said, I don't even know Jesus. Then he denied knowing Jesus. Now he denies Jesus in the brothers and sisters in Galatia. This is really the fourth time he denies Jesus, I think we could argue. So in this passage, we see Peter's old habitual struggle with fear rising to the surface, and his temptation to fear gives birth to active sin when he breaks off fellowship with these Galatian believers. The conflict in Antioch develops in this way. Peter comes to Antioch. He begins to eat with the Galatian converts, which is forbidden in Jewish law at that time. You were not allowed to do that. Then certain men from James came to Antioch. We're not really told what their relationship was to James or if James approved of their mission or not. But then Peter, for reasons that are not made explicitly clear, becomes afraid of this group of men. Then his fear causes him to draw back and separate himself from the Gentile Christians. And then the rest of the Jews, and even Barnabas, Paul's partner, withdrew and joined in this hypocrisy. Then, therefore, Paul rebukes him to his face. There's an old maxim in the church, so public the sin, so public the confrontation. In verse 14, Paul gives his take on, this, on the situation. 
This behavior was out of step with the gospel and inconsistent with Peter's own understanding of his calling as an apostle of Jesus. One of the things that I find so interesting in this account is the way that these men, the guys who come from Jerusalem, want others to be like them. They're exerting a lot of pressure to have people conform to their own standards. It feels a little bit like this current cultural moment in the United States, doesn't it? This is the spirit, I think, behind the censorious impulse of this current generation. And, of course, that label that gets thrown around so much, cancel culture. Become like us. Don't say anything out of line. These men wanted the Galatian converts to become like they are. Verse 12 says, Before certain men came from James, Cephas ate with the Gentiles. Or as Paul puts it in verse 14, Though Cephas was a Jew, he was living like a Gentile. Peter was enjoying the freedom of the gospel. Not only was he not requiring that Gentile believers become like him and get circumcised and keep the ceremonial laws, but he realized even as a Jew, he was free in Christ to become, as it were, like a Gentile in the way that he lived. Jesus, as Jesus, who was God, became a man. Peter, who was a Jew, was becoming like other kinds of men. This was being done very much in the spirit of being all things to all people, so that all, by all means, he might win some. Uh, remember, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says to be all things to all people. Not ingratiating yourself to everybody, but just saying um, anything short of sinning, you'll, you'll try to meet people where they are to bring them into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. I really think I saw this lived out in the days leading up our preparation for hide-and-seek club. When I see a lot of people who are not kids anymore becoming like kids, building a cardboard town, <laughs> painting storefronts and just all this stuff, that was really an effort by adults to become like children that they might win some. Paul, um, Peter, is a Jewish man. He's from a Jewish background. He grew up in a Jewish family. He, his whole life has been formed and shaped not only within the culture of Judaism, but the religious traditions of Judaism. But he has now subjugated all of his preferences to the mission of saving lost people with the gospel. And so and he's become all things to all people so that by any means he might win some. If it's what it takes to win a Gentile convert, to sit down and eat with him, by golly, that's what he, Peter's going to do. And he was doing it until these guys show up, and now all of a sudden he starts living in their minds. Other people's minds are a small, uncomfortable place to live out your days. And Peter, is he's just living in their minds. It's a terrible thing. I think because we are so far removed from Peter's day, it might be lost on us just how radical Peter's behavior was for a man from his culture in that day and age. For a little bit of background on Peter's journey toward freedom in Christ, turn with me to Acts 10. There was in Acts 10, we read about a Gentile man named Cornelius who lived at a place called Caesarea. And God wanted Peter to go and share the good news of the gospel with Cornelius. To prepare Peter, who is a Jewish man, to visit the home of Cornelius, a Gentile, God gave Peter a vision in advance. In Acts 10, verses 11 through 14, uh, we're told about a vision Peter had where a sheet was lowered from heaven with all kinds of animals that the Old Testament pronounced as unclean. You couldn't eat them. And a voice in his vision says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter responds, No, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came back, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This is a tremendously important turning point for Peter and for the church. God was saying, Peter, a new era of redemptive history has dawned. The Messiah has come. The sacrificial and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament have done their preparatory work. And now you can let them go. 
So when Peter is called for, he goes to the house of this man Cornelius, a Gentile. Verse 28 shows how he understood the vision in relation to his calling to go to this man's house. He says to the Gentiles there, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And Peter then preaches the gospel to them. And as he was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on the people in Cornelius' house. And it really kind of astonished Peter that these Gentiles who hadn't undergone circumcision, who hadn't been obeying the dietary laws or any of the rest of it, that these folks could receive the Holy Spirit just like them. This was a mind-blowing and uh, it just changed everything in his mind about, about how a person uh, found favor with God. But now after this incredible encounter, he's had a vision, he's gone, he's seen the Holy Spirit come on the Gentile believers, he's in trouble. <laughs> in Acts 11, it says, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, we've heard of them before, they criticized him saying, why did you go to, the, to uncircumcised men and eat with them? This is the same group that came to Antioch, and it's probably the same question they asked him there. Peter's defense comes to a climax in Acts eleven seventeen. He tells them about the vision. He tells them about the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentile believers. He offers all these things as proof. And then he says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, speaking about the Holy Spirit, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? This is a really critical moment uh, for Peter, because here he's forced to choose. Am I going to say and do things to meet the expectations of these men, or am I going to say and do things that meet with what God has made clear? Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And in this moment in Acts 11... Peter trusted in the Lord. He said it like it was. He let the chips fall. <laughs> if he had gone the other direction, he would have walked right into a trap. He would have been ensnared. These events that we read in Galatians 2, which happened later, played out in a different time in a different culture. But again, I'm willing to bet we can all sympathize with the kind of forces that were swirling around Peter. We all live, again, in the midst of this complicated web of relationships. We all live in the midst of a community that holds its members accountable to certain group norms. That's not unique to our culture. That's true of every culture, everywhere, all the time. There are lots of things that we can do or say that won't land us in jail or anything, but there could be heavy relational or professional costs for us if we said or did them. It's worth noting that Peter is called out by Paul not for actively doing anything. Peter didn't do anything. <laughs> it's what he didn't do that Paul is calling him out for. The fear of man causes Peter to stop doing what he had been doing and enjoying and celebrating openly before. I think one of the places where we see this uh, fear of man um, governing behavior and the way we think is social media. Uh, social media has a way of awakening us both the fear of man and a love for the praise of man. On social media, we tend to put out this heavily curated image of ourselves. Um, I think that if years from now somebody dug up all of our social media profiles and stuff, they would think that the life of an American in these days was just nothing but birthday parties and sunsets and restaurant meals. <laughs> That's what they would think it was. We just Nobody takes a picture of themselves crying, depressed, and alone. <laughs> I mean, some people do. Maybe I don't know. But 
It's a heavily curated image that we put out there. And we want everyone to think well of us. And not only wanting people to think well of us, we really want them to not think poorly of us. It's a place where there's a lot of dishonesty and misrepresentation and massaging our public image. We count the number of likes and shares. But social media is also sometimes a place where we refrain, like Peter, from openly celebrating and enjoying what we would otherwise in a different context. The most perverse thing about Peter, what Peter does here is that he knows that there is a main thing to orient his life around. He has been introduced to something that demands his all, something that is worth living for, even dying for, to make sacrifices for, and that's the gospel. However, he inexplicably, mysteriously even, sets aside all of that to make these men and their opinions the main thing in his life, at least in this moment. Peter prioritizes what he fears above what he loves, and that's perverse. It's strange. It's also perverse because the gospel matters in a life-and-death kind of way. Do you know what's betrayed in this moment? When he changes his behavior for fear of what these men might think, he betrays the fact he doesn't care if those men live or die. Truly. He doesn't care for their eternal souls. He doesn't care to change their minds about the way of salvation. He just wants to avoid their wrath. I really believe in this moment as a people within a people that the church must exist in part to point the surrounding culture to a more excellent way of loving one another, of being gracious to one another. But more importantly than all of that, we must point them to the way of salvation. And if for fear of the reaction of the culture, we do not bring up the gospel, that reveals that we don't particularly care if they live or die. This is out of step with the gospel. Peter was happy to preach one thing while living another, at least in this moment. Again, he's a complicated man. We can't say that as a blanket statement about him always. But in this moment, that's the facts. That's what's going on. And there are times where that's true of Josh Tate as well. <laughs> I'm willing to bet that if we're all honest, that's true for us. There are times where we pull the punch. We don't say what needs to be said. We don't live in the public space in a way that reflects what we cherish in private. Now, according to verse 14, Paul says that Peter and Barnabas are out of step with the truth of the gospel. And we can see what a perilous place it is for a Christian to find him or herself, to continue in ministry effort without the backing of the one who sent us, and to do that in a manner that contradicts the message that was entrusted to us. To do this would be to invite either a catastrophic course correction or as God disciplines us, or, what is worse, far worse, uselessness and work without any blessing. The benefits of the gospel can only be received by a living faith in the Son of God, not by works done in the flesh. Poor Peter has poor Peter. He's replaced Jesus with these confused, hard-hearted men. He's made this gaggle of bullies his Lord. What a terrible trade. What a horrible trade. But do I make the same trade every time I go on Facebook? Do I make the same trade? Did I make the same trade in high school when I didn't pray before my meal in the high school cafeteria 
when I would have at home. Do we make the same trade, the same horrible, catastrophic, mind-blowingly terrible trade any time in the midst of this society where we conform what we say and do to the expectations of the mob rather than to our Lord? Poor Peter. He's not only traded lords, but he's got the good news of the gospel mixed up with this compromised mess of mixed messages. He is acting for all the world to see like the circumcision party has a point while preaching that they don't. It's confusing and damaging what Peter is doing. What will my children think in the midst of this toxic soup of a culture if their dad doesn't speak up about weird stuff that's going on, about things that I think are not true? The gospel is not just something that we confess with our mouth. It is also, and perhaps more importantly, it finds expression in how we live. But really, you can't really say one is more important than the other. Saying and doing must always go together. If we say one thing and do another, then we're hypocrites. If we do but never explain ourselves out loud with words, then we might, have, we might just be a mystery to everyone. But faith, when it is genuine, creates a way of living and doing that agrees with and supports the message that we confess with our mouths. But Peter's actions are out of step with the truth of the gospel that he's been preaching. It's been said, and I think rightly so, that courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the mastery of it, but not being mastered by it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.7, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And I think we must see the enemy's strategy behind what was happening with Peter in the Galatians. Satan was using fear to destroy Peter's leadership to undermine his credibility with the Galatian Gentile converts, and to divide the body of Christ. At the same time, God was using love to boldly counter the activity of Satan. Paul, motivated by a zealous love for his Lord and the Galatians, and for Peter too, corrects Peter and brings him back in step with the truth of the gospel. And in doing so, he restored fellowship within the body by bringing these groups back together again. And I just know that if this had played out in America, they would have split and formed two different denominations. But Paul is focused on a unity founded on the truth of the gospel. If you are struggling with fear this morning, I think more than anything else, what we need to see is the gospel again. You need to stop and ponder what it implies about God's intentions toward you that he gave his son to die for you. The gospel means that God Almighty is for you and not against you if you trust him. What then shall we say to this? It says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died? Yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. If God is for you, who can be against you? A life that sees and believes this gospel says, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 6. We have our temporary lapses of faith, like Peter, but God is gracious to his wayward children. Jesus was gracious to restore Peter after he denied him, and he is also gracious to rebuke and restore Peter after he denied the Galatians. He sent Paul to Peter to bring him back in step with the gospel, and he may be sending his word to me, to you this morning, to remind us that the gospel frees us from what we fear. At the heart of Peter's fear was a momentary treasuring of the good opinion of men over and above the approval of God, says John Piper. 
He was governed by a desire to receive his reward now from men and not at the end of time from his heavenly Father. Anytime we fear man in a way that results in us acting in ways that are out of step with the truth of the gospel, our sin in that moment is that we treasure our own standing and comfort more than God, or we treasure the good opinion of others more than the approval of God. And the question is, are we bullied by fears this morning into acting in ways that are out of step with the gospel that we confess? Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Father, I just pray that you would make us a courageous people, not a belligerent people, not even a contentious people. God, I pray that we would be a peace-loving, gentle, respectful people who are not cowed and bullied into silence. Father, help us to be bold. Give us a faith-filled courage. But Father, I pray that we would not be... God, that you'd make us tough but not mean. Father, we are a people who have been shaped by grace. We are always becoming what we worship. And what we revere, in the end, we will more and more resemble. And Father, the vision, the the one that you've put in front of us, the thing that has shaped us is the example of Jesus on the cross. Who even though we were sinners, even though we were far off, we were alienated and hostile in mind, when we were in that state, he died for us not counting our sins against us. And so, Father, I pray that we would be gracious to those in our lives, God, who, uh, who are similarly hostile towards us. God, help us to be like Jesus in the midst of this culture. But God, I pray that you would deliver us from the fear of man. God, I pray that what we say and what we do in the midst of these days would not be done or said out of a fear of what others might think. God, capture our hearts with a clear picture of what matters most. Peter found himself out of step with the gospel. And I pray that in the midst of these days, in this generation, in the midst of this culture, God, you would find us saying and doing in a way that agrees that the gospel is the main thing to orient our lives around. It's worth sacrificing for. It's worth living for and dying for. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we do that, you would draw many more to yourself. God, give us a loving concern for others that outweighs our love for our own comfort. And God, I pray that you would use our church here at State Road in ways that surprise us because we stepped out with faith-filled courage to represent you in the midst of this culture in these days. Help us to represent you in the public space well. And I pray that you'd be set apart in our hearts as Lord, not hard-hearted, confused people. In Jesus' name, amen.